Chapter Three, Part One of the Sword of Antietam. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sword of Antietam by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Three, Beside the River, Part One. Dick was on duty early in the morning when he saw a horseman coming at a gallop toward the Rapidan. The man was in civilian clothing, but his figure seemed familiar. The boy raised his glasses, and he saw at once that it was Shepard. He saw, too, that he was urging his horse to its utmost speed. The boy's heart suddenly began to throb, and there was a cold, prickling sensation at the roots of his hair. Shepard had made an extraordinary impression upon him, and he did not believe that the man would be coming at such a pace unless he came with great news. He saw Shepard stop, give the password to the pickets, then gallop on, ford the river, and come straight toward the heart of the army. Dick ran forward and met him. "'What is it?' he cried. "'General Pope's tent. Where is it? I can't wait a minute.' Dick pointed toward a big marquee, standing in an open space, and Shepard, leaping from his horse and abandoning it entirely, ran toward the marquee. A word or two to the sentinels, and he disappeared inside. Dick, devoured with curiosity and anxiety, went to Colonel Winchester with the story of what he had seen. "'I know of Shepard,' said the colonel. He is the best and most daring spy in the whole service of the North. I think you're right in inferring that he rides so fast for good cause. Shepard remained with the commander-in-chief a quarter of an hour. When he came forth from the tent, he regained his horse and rode away without a word, going in the direction of Clark's Mountain. But his news was quickly known, because it was of a kind that could not be concealed. Pennington came running with it to the regiment, his face flushed and his eyes big. "'Look! Look at the mountain!' he exclaimed. "'I see it,' said Warner. "'I saw it there yesterday, too, in exactly the same place.' "'So did I, but there's something behind it. Lee and Jackson are there with sixty or eighty thousand men. The whole southern army is only six or seven miles away.' Even Warner's face changed. How do you know this? he asked. A spy has seen their army. They say he is a man whose reports are never false. At any rate, orders have already been issued for us to retreat, and I hear that we're going back until we reach the Rappahannock, behind which we will camp. Dick knew very well now that it was Shepard who brought the news and Pennington's report about the retreat was also soon verified. The whole army was soon in motion, and a feeling of depression replaced the optimism of the night before. The advance had been turned into a retreat. Were they to go back and forth in this manner forever? But Colonel Winchester spoke hopefully to his young aides, and said that the retreat was right. We're drawing out of a trap, he said and time is always on our side. The South, to win, has to hit hard and fast, and in this case 
the Army of the Potomac, and the Army of Virginia may join before Lee and Jackson can come up. The lads tried to reconcile themselves, but nevertheless they did not like retreat. Dick, with his powerful glasses, often looked back toward the dark bulk of Clark's Mountain. He saw nothing there, nor anything in the low country between, save the rear ranks of the Union army marching on. But Shepard had been right. Lee and Jackson, advancing silently and with every avenue of news guarded, were there behind the mountain with 60,000 men, flushed with victories and putting a supreme faith in their great commanders, who so well deserved their trust. The men of the valley and the seven days, wholly confident, asked only to be led against Pope and his army, and most of them expected a battle that very day, while the northern commander was slipping from the well-laid trap. Pope's judgment in this case was good, and fortune, too, favored him. Before the last of his men had left the Rapidan, Lee himself, with his staff officers, climbed to the summit of Clark's Mountain. They were armed with the best of glasses, but drifting fogs coming down from the north spread along the whole side of the mountain and hung like a curtain between it and the retreating army. None of their glasses could pierce the veil and it was not until nearly night that rising winds caught the fog and took it away. Then Lee and his generals saw a vast cloud of dust in the northwest, and they knew that under it marched Pope's retreating army. The southern army was at once ordered forward in pursuit, and in the night the vanguard, waiting the Rapidan, followed eagerly. Dick and his comrades did not know then that they were followed so closely, but they were destined to know it before morning. The regiment of Colonel Winchester, one of the best and bravest in the whole service, formed a part of the rear guard, and Dick, Warner, and Pennington rode with their chief. The country was broken, and they crossed small streams. Sometimes they were in open fields, and again they passed through long stretches of forest. There was a strong force of cavalry with the regiment, and the beat of the horse's hoofs made a steady, rolling sound which was not unpleasant. But Dick found the night full of sinister omens. They had left the Rapidan in such haste that there was still a certain confusion of impressions. The gigantic scale of everything took hold of him. One hundred and fifty thousand men, or near it, were marching northward in two armies, which could not be many miles apart. The darkness and the feeling of tragedy soon to come oppressed him. He listened eagerly for the sounds of pursuit, but the long hours passed and he heard nothing. The rear guard did not talk. The men wasted no strength that way, but marched stolidly on in the moonlight. Midnight passed and after a while it grew darker. Colonel Winchester and his young officers rode at the very rear, and Pennington suddenly held up his hand. "'What is it?' asked Colonel Winchester. "'Somebody following us, sir. I was trained out on the plains to take notice of such things. May I get down and put my ear to the ground? I may look ridiculous, sir, but I can make sure.' "'Certainly. Go ahead.' Pennington sprang down and put his ear to the road. He did not listen long, 
but when he stood up again he said, Horsemen are coming. I can't tell how many, but several hundreds at least. As were the very last of our own army, they must be southern cavalry, said Colonel Winchester. If they want to attack, I dare say our boys are willing. Very soon they heard clearly the gallop of the cavalry, and the men heard it also. They looked up and turned their faces toward those who must be foes. Despite the dimness, Dick saw their eyes brighten. Colonel Winchester had judged rightly. The boys were willing. The rear guard turned back and waited, and in a few minutes the southern horsemen came in sight, opening fire at once. Their infantry, too, soon appeared in the woods and fields, and the dark hours before the dawn were filled with the crackle of small arms. Dick kept close to Colonel Winchester, who anxiously watched the pursuit, throwing his own regiment across the road, and keeping up a heavy fire on the enemy. The Union loss was not great, as most of the firing in the dusk, of necessity, was at random, and Dick heard bullets whistling all about him. Sometimes the bark flew from trees, and now and then there was a rain of twigs, shorn from the branches by the showers of missiles. It was arduous work. The men were worn by the darkness, the uncertainty, and the incessant pursuit. The northern rear guard presented a strong front, retreating slowly with its face to the enemy, and always disputing the road. Dick, meanwhile, could hear through the crash of the firing the deep rumble of Pope's great army, with its artillery and thousands of wagons continually marching toward the Rappahannock. His mind became absorbed in a vital question. Would Lee and Jackson come up before they could reach the bigger river? Would a battle be forced the next day, while the Union army was in retreat? He confided his anxieties to Warner, who rode by his side. I take it that it's only a vanguard that's pursuing us, said the Vermonter. If they were in great force, they'd have been pushing harder and harder. We must have got a good start before Lee and Jackson found us out. We know our Jackson, Dick, and he'd have been right on top of us without delay. That's right, George. It must be their cavalry, mostly. I suppose Jeb Stewart is there leading them. At any rate, we'll soon know better what's doing. Look there toward the east. Don't you see a ray of light behind that hill? I see it, Dick. Is it the first ray of the morning, or is it just a low star? It's the dawn, Dick, and mighty glad I am to see it. Look how fast it comes. The sun shot up over the hill. The sky, turning to silver, soon gave way to gold, and the clear August light poured in a flood over the rolling country. Dick saw ahead of him a vast cloud of dust extending miles from east to west, marking where the army of Pope pushed on its retreat to the Rappahannock. There was no need to search for the northern force. The newest recruit would know that it was here. The southern vanguard was behind them, and not many hundred yards away. Dick distinctly saw the cavalry riding along the road, and hundreds of skirmishers pushing through the woods and fields. He judged the force did not number many thousands, and that it could not think of assailing the whole Union army. But with the coming of day, 
the vigor of the attack increased. The skirmishers fired from the shelter of every tree stump, fence, or hillock, and the bullets pattered about Dick and his comrades. The Union rear guard maintained its answering fire, but as it was retreating, it was at a disadvantage. The regiments began to suffer. Many men were wounded. The fire became most galling. A sudden charge by the rear guard was ordered, and it was made with spirit. The southern van was driven back, but when the retreat was resumed, the skirmishers and the cavalry came forward again, always firing at their retreating foe. I judge that it's going to be a very hot morning, said Colonel Winchester, wiping away a few drops of blood where a bullet had barely touched his face. I think the wind of that bullet hurt me more than its kiss. There will be no great battle today. We can see now that they are not yet in strong enough force, but we'll never know a minute's rest until we're behind the Rappahannock. Oh, Dick, if McClellan's army were only here also, this business of retreating is as bitter as death itself. Dick saw the pain on his colonel's face, and it was reflected on his own. I feel it, sir, in the same way. Our men are just as eager as the Johnnies to fight, and they are as brave and tenacious. What do you think will happen, sir? We'll reach the Rappahannock and take refuge behind it. We command the railroad bridge there and can cross and destroy it afterward. But the river is broad and deep with high banks, and the army of the enemy cannot possibly force the passage in any way while we defend it. And after that, sir? God alone knows. Look out, Dick. Those men are aiming at us. Colonel Winchester seized the bridle of Dick's horse and pulled him violently to one side, pulling his own horse in the same direction in the same manner. The bullets of half a dozen southern skirmishers, standing under the boughs of a beech tree less than two hundred yards away, hissed angrily by them. A close call, said the colonel. There, they've been scattered by our own riflemen, and one of them remains to pay the toll. The reply of the northern skirmishers had been quick, and the gray figure, lying prone by the trunk of the tree, told Dick that the colonel had been right. He was shaken by a momentary shudder, but he could not long remember one among so many. They rode on, leaving the prone figure out of sight, and the southern cavalry and skirmishers pressed forward afresh. Many of the Union men had food in their saddlebags, and supplies were sent back for those who did not have it. Colonel Winchester, who was now thoroughly cool, advised his officers to eat, even if they felt no hunger. "'I'm hungry enough,' said Pennington to Dick. "'Out on the plains, where the air is so fresh and so full of life, I was always hungry, and I suppose I brought my appetite here with me. Dick, I've opened a can of cove oysters, and that's a great deal for a fellow on horseback to do. Here, take your share.' and they'll help out that dry bread you're munching. Dick accepted with thanks. He learned that he, too, could eat with a good appetite, while bullets were knocking up dust only twenty yards away. Meanwhile, there was a steady flash of firing from every wood and cornfield behind them. As he ate, he watched, and he saw an amazing panorama. Miles in front, the great cloud of dust, 
cutting across from horizon to horizon, swelled slowly on toward the Rappahannock. Behind them rode the southern cavalry, and masses of infantry were pressing forward, too. Far off on either flank rolled the pleasant country, its beauty heightened by the loom of blue mountains. Colonel Winchester had predicted truly the fighting between the northern rearguard and the southern vanguard never ceased. Every moment the bullets were whistling, and occasionally a cannon lent its deep roar to the crackling fire of the rifles. Daring detachments of the southern cavalry often galloped up and charged lagging regiments, and they were driven off with equal courage and daring. The three boys took especial notice of those cavalry bands and began to believe at last that they could identify the very men in them. Dick looked for his cousin, Harry Kenton. He was sure that he would be there in the front, but he did not see him. Instead, he saw after a while an extraordinary figure on a large black horse, a large man in magnificent uniform, with a great plume in his hat. He was nearer to them than any other southern horseman, and he seemed to be indifferent to danger. "'Look, look, there's Jeb Stuart!' exclaimed Dick. He had heard so much about the famous Stuart and his gorgeous uniform that he knew him instinctively, and Warner and Pennington, as their eyes followed his pointing finger, felt the same conviction. Three of the northern riflemen fired at once at the conspicuous target, and Dick breathed a little sigh of relief when all their bullets missed. Then the brilliant figure turned to one side and was lost in the smoke. Well, said Pennington, we've seen Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stuart both in battle against us. I wonder who will come next. Lee is due, said Warner, but I doubt whether his men will let him expose himself in such a way. We'll have to slip under cover to get a chance of seeing him. The hours went on, and the fight between rear guard and vanguard never ceased. That column of dust, miles long, was at the same distance in front, continuing in its slow course for the river, but the foes in contact were having plenty of dust showers of their own. Dick's throat and mouth burned with the dust and heat of the pitiless August day, and his bones ached with the tension and the long hours in the saddle. But his spirit was high. They were holding off the southern cavalry, and he felt that they would continue to do so. About noon he ate more cold food and then rode on, while the sun blazed and blazed, and the dust whirled in clouds like the dust-devils of the desert, continually spitting forth bullets instead of sand. Late in the afternoon he heard the sound of many trumpets and saw the southern cavalry getting together in a great mass. A warning ran instantly among the Union troops, and the horsemen in blue and one or two infantry regiments drew closer together. They're going to charge in force, said Colonel Winchester to Dick. See, our rear guard has lost touch with our main army, leaving a side opening between. They see this chance and intend to make the most of it. But our men are willing and anxious to meet them, said Dick. You can see it in their faces. He had made no mistake. 
as the fire in their rear deepened, and they saw the gathering squadrons of gray cavalry, a fierce anger seized the retreating Union rearguard. Those wasps had been buzzing and stinging them all day long, and they had had enough of it. They could fight, and they would, if their officers would let them. Now it seemed that the officers were willing. A deep and menacing mutter of satisfaction ran along the whole line. They would show the Southerners what kind of men they were. Colonel Winchester drew his infantry regiment into a small wood, which at that point skirted the road. There is no doubt that we've found it at the right time, said Warner. Both knew that the forest would protect the infantry from the fierce charges of the Southern cavalry, while proving no obstacle to the Northern defense. His own cavalry was gathering in the road, ready to meet Jeb Stuart and his squadrons. The three boys sat on their horses within the covering of the trees, and watched eagerly, while the hostile forces massed for battle. The southern cavalry was supported by infantry also on its flanks, and once again Dick caught sight of Jeb Stuart with his floating plume. But that time he was too far away for any of the northern riflemen to reach him with a bullet, and as before he disappeared quickly in the clouds of dust and smoke, which never ceased to float over both forces. "'Look out! The charge!' suddenly exclaimed Colonel Winchester. They heard the thunder of the galloping horses, and also the flash of many rifles and carbines. Cavalry met cavalry, but the men in gray reeled back, and as they retreated, the northern infantry in the wood sent a deadly fire into the flank of the attacking force. The southern infantry replied, and a fierce battle raged along the road and through the woods. Dick heard once more the rattling of bullets on bark, and felt the twigs falling upon his face as they were shorn off by the missiles. "'We hold the road and will hold it for a while,' exclaimed Colonel Winchester, exultation showing in his tone. "'Why can't we hold it all the time?' Dick could not refrain from asking. "'Because we are retreating, and the Southerners are continually coming up, while our army wishes to go away.' Dick glanced through the trees, and saw that the great clouds of dust still were rolling toward the northwest. It must be almost at the Rappahannock now, and he began to appreciate what this desperate combat in the woods meant. They were holding back the southern army, while their men could cross the river and reform behind it. The battle swayed back and forth, and it was most desperate between the cavalry. The bugles again and again called the gray horsemen to the charge, and although the blue infantry supported their own horsemen with a heavy rifle fire and held the wood undaunted, the northern rear guard was forced to give way at last before the pressure of numbers and attacks that would not cease. Their own bugles sounded the retreat, and they began to retire slowly. "'Do we run again?' exclaimed Pennington a tear ploughing its way through the smoky grime on his cheek. No, we don't run, replied Warner calmly. We're forced back, and the rebels will claim a victory, but we haven't fought for nothing. Lee and Jackson will never get up in time to attack our army before it's over the river. 
the regiment began its slow retreat. It had not suffered much, owing to the shelter of the forest, and, full of courage and resolution, it was a formidable support on the flank of the slowly retreating cavalry. End of chapter 3, part 1